Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Once upon a time, there was an English publisher named John Newbery. After running a successful newspaper business in Reading in the 1740s, Newbery moved to London to set up a shop and publishing company. He initially published some typical works aimed at adults, but soon decided to try his hand at books specifically for children. He used pictures, attractive colours and binding, and a child-friendly size to appeal to his target audience. And, importantly, he realised that he could package children's books with toys, His first publication in 1744 was A Little Pretty Pocket Book, a work that's now generally recognised as the first ever modern children's book. And it was sold with a choice of a ball or a pincushion. So it was sort of early marketing. (laughs) Um, And the the ball, say, had a, a red side and a black side, and you were supposed to hang it up on the ceiling in the house. And when the child was very good, you put a pin in the red side and the child was bad, you put a pin in the black side. And if they had 10 pins in the black side, they got smacked. And if they got 10 pins in the red side, they got a reward. That's Dr Jane Carroll, Usher Assistant Professor in Children's Literature at Trinity College Dublin. So there's this idea that they're already marketing for for boys and girls separately, that they're already marketing the book as a sort of um, educational or didactic tool, a sort of tool of conformity, you know, make the child behave nicely. The full title of the book gives you a better idea. A Little Pretty Pocketbook, intended for the instruction and amusement of Little Master Tommy and Pretty Miss Polly. So it's instruction and amusement. And the amusement part is important because while there had been plenty of children's books before The Pretty Pocketbook, they'd always tended to be firmly didactic and moralising. Books aimed at children about how to act properly in front of your social betters or how to say your prayers respectfully or how to improve your table manners. Some of the first books that we know were written for children were published in the 15th century. So there's a there's a lovely little book um, called Stans Pura Ad Mensam, um, uh, The Boy Stands at the Table. It's, it's, it's a book of um, table manners for children. And it's published by a guy called John Lydgate in the 15th century. And it's it's lovely, but it's so obviously written for children. It's written in a language that children could enjoy and memorise very easily. It's sort of written as a, a verse, but it's all things like, you know, don't wipe your mouth in the tablecloth and, you know, make sure other people get the salt first. Newbery's Pretty Pocket Book and an entire career of subsequent children's publications changed all of this. Now, by modern standards, a work like The Pretty Pocket Book is still very didactic. The title page states, for example, that the ball and pincushion were to infallibly make Tommy a good boy and Polly a good girl. But Newbery's publication, and the many that soon followed, was something new and different, and he went on to become the most important publisher of children's literature of the 18th century, releasing dozens of best-selling titles in his lifetime. The Newbery Medal, one of the most prestigious awards for children's literature in the US, is named after him. 
and his books started the move towards the type of children's literature we might recognise today, the type we read in bed at night with our kids. You ready? It's going to be about a monster. Okay, so what's the name of the, the book? I'm Not Scared. What's it called? I'm Not Scared. Oh, yeah, and it's by Dan Crisp and Lee... Wildish. Picture books, like the one I'm reading here, are our first introduction to fiction. Engaging and colourful pictures, easy to remember words, beloved stories, made to be read over and over and over again. Dr. Carroll is an academic who works on a wide variety of areas within children's literature. And it's a job that tends to prompt a range of reactions from people. It's interesting, though, because... There's an immediate assumption that you spend a lot of time working with actual children, um, you know, and that you have some kind of great and deep insight into early years psychology. And people say, my child doesn't like this book. And you go, OK, you know, that's that happens. <laughs> Scholars of children's literature are not, as sometimes needs to be pointed out, child psychologists or early years education specialists. They're literary scholars of a specific type of literature. It's just that unlike, say, modernist poetry, more or less everyone has an opinion on children's literature. Well, I suppose everybody's got an opinion on it because 100% of us have been children. So we're all entitled to understand that experience. Um, so there's a lot of kind of personal input and people say, oh, my favourite book was this and I used to read such a lot of things. And It's a topic that I think it's fair to say many of us have a strong emotional connection to. Cherished childhood books, stories that changed how we saw the world, favourite characters and book series. Now, this is, I know, a privileged position. Not everyone has the opportunity to read, let alone buy lots and lots of books as a kid. But I mean, say, a lot of schools will, you know, make reading part of the day or make trips to the local library part of the school curriculum, you know, and that sort of thing really sticks with people. The other thing is that for lots of people, school is the last time they really read fiction. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, like me, you really enjoy reading fiction. But there are lots of people, weird people, who never read any fiction, and perhaps haven't done since they left secondary school, maybe in that kind of backlash against subjects you were made to do in school but didn't enjoy. We all remember have that experience of, of reading in school and being possibly read to in school, and that sort of bound up with stories. But then a lot of people, I suppose, grow up to not read so much or not be so interested Um but you wonder, what book put them off? What was the last book they read? I've always loved to find out. What was the one that was sort of the nail in the coffin? You could say that the weird ones are those who do keep reading, who study literature at university or remain lifelong avid readers of fiction. Or you could call them, us, the sports readers. You know, I often say it to students, um, you're the sort of sports readers. Yeah. You know, you're the kind of, you know, that if you imagine a sports team and the people who get up at, you know, six in the morning to go for a run before work or something because they're so interested in their training, you're like that, but with books. Like, that, rather than going to bed, you're sitting up reading. Or, you know, you, you can't imagine going on a trip without a book and a spare book in your bag. You know, you are that sort of almost athletic reader that wants to kind of keep stretching <laughs> their muscles and keep practising. I like this analogy. So I wanted to understand more about those very first books we read as children. What kind of monster do you think it is? I think it's going to have black hands and a red mouth with white teeth and black nose and grey eyes with white on it and pink ears and green and red mouth with white teeth and black feet and blue body. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty specific. So how do we start with the children's picture book? 
Well, when you start going back historically, it can get a little complicated. What is a children's picture book, exactly? Well, what's a picture book? Or, well, what's a child? And what's a book? And what about... Oh, okay. Bring it back. First off, children are not simply children in every place and time. You know, you talk about the 19th century child. I mean, the child that had a leisurely childhood to sit around reading 19th century children's books in was not the same child that was being forced up a chimney, you know, to kind of sweep it out. Um, And we know that it's racially inflected as well, that our ideas about what age somebody should start to be responsible at, you know, changes um, and culturally inflected. You know, different countries have their ideas about when childhood starts or finishes. But I suppose part of studying children's literature is trying to unpack those ideas around childhood. What is a child and how is that idea of childhood sort of constructed through a book or through different texts? You know, what sort of ideas about children are being fed to us and fed to children through the books that they're reading? Despite any problems with definitions, there are certain things a children's story needs to have. For one, it will generally centre on a child. That normally a children's book is about a child. But of course then, you know, a lot of the Beatrix Potter books fail this test or uh, The Wind in the Willows say that's often considered a children's book has no children in it except for the poor little otter that gets lost. Um, But generally I would say that they're about a child and that they are on the side of the child. The child will come out as the winner in the end in some way that, you know, if you think of something like Matilda or you think of something like um, some of David Ammon's work, something like My Name is Mina, you know, the child is important and their voice is important and we're going to be on their side all the way through the book. Beatrix Potter's books and The Wind in the Willows, both early 20th century works, are mentioned here. And it was around this time and the preceding decades of the late 19th century that children's literature exploded in popularity. There were, as we've heard, plenty of children's books before this time, although a big part of the problem with working out quite how many is the lack of surviving copies. I mean, they're children's books. If they're great, then they're read and reread and sat on and crushed and covered in milk and jam and God knows what else. You know, children are hands-on. Um, I, I want to have the ear and bones. So, yeah. so no, I'll just I'll hold it here. Okay. Yeah. So... I'll hold it. Yeah. If a children's book survives for 300 years, there's a strong possibility it was because it was a bit rubbish and no child actually wanted to read it. By the late 19th and early 20th century, though, children's book publishing had become an industry, something familiar to us today. By the 19th century, it sort of explodes. You know, you get the sort of the tie-ins, the commercial tie-ins for books really take off that, uh, say... Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, um, Lewis Carroll was noting that there were um, umbrellas carved with the handles of different characters that you could buy. And um, he writes to Alice, Alice Liddell, she was Alice Hargreaves at this stage, she had married and grown up. And he writes to her and says he's very excited that these umbrellas are out and which one would she like as a gift? Um, he says he's going to get the Tweedledum Tweedledee one because he likes that the best. Um Beatrix Potter makes a Peter Rabbit toy and sends it to the patent office so that she can protect it. She knows how valuable this is as a commercial item, you know, that she knows that if she doesn't get in and patent it first, there's going to be this sort of wave of Peter Rabbit toys and stuff. So you get that kind of rise of commodity at the same time as you get the rise of children's literature. And the 19th century is a point where it sort of becomes much more industrialised, maybe. 
by the middle of the 20th century, picture books had fully emerged in the way we're familiar with them now. And lots of these early books are classics widely read today. The Curious George stories, the Miffy books by Dick Bruna, Jean de Brunoff's Babar, Dr. Zeus, Where the Wild Things Are, and so many others. Authors and illustrators started to experiment and play with the form. Rhyme and meter are usually important elements of a picture book. I'm not scared of monsters. They don't frighten me. Even ones with scary eyes, I'd have them ran for tea. The recent Oi Frog series by Kez Gray and Jim Field is a great example of where the rhyme completely dictates the entire series. Basically, it's a series of animals sitting on things. Frogs sit on logs, leopards sit on shepherds, kittens sit on mittens, and, well, I won't ruin the ending for you. And as the 20th century wore on, authors experimented not just with the words themselves, but how and where they appeared on the page, with typeface and spacing, and illustrators played with colour and positioning and white space and so much more. It's much more dynamic than just sort of putting some text and then putting a picture beside it, you know, that there's something... There's something quite complicated and sophisticated going on about how you arrange the words around the pictures or through the pictures. And I think it demands a lot of the child reader as well, that especially at a point where they might be pre-literate or, or not very confidently literate themselves, that if you look at a page, uh, say, uh, Mo Willems, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, and there's the pigeon having a tantrum and there's lots and lots and lots of images of the pigeon. But for the very small child to realise that this is in fact the same pigeon having a meltdown rather than 20 pigeons is a huge intellectual leap. There's visual as well as textual literacy that needs to be learnt. And while it's very clear to us that children are expanding their vocabulary, learning their alphabet and how to read, it's not always as clear how much they're learning to read pictures as well. Which raises something obvious that I haven't fully talked about yet. Picture books have pictures. They are a combination of text and image. And for a great picture book, they have to combine perfectly. The words tell a story, but so do the pictures. And the two stories can work closely together, they can work slightly apart, or they can even ironically play off each other. I think it's more fruitful to think about it in terms of almost like an ecosystem. That they will all do different jobs, but if you take one out, the whole thing collapses. That they have to be seen as... as working together and working through and among each other, that there is a sort of synergy and even sometimes a sort of symbiosis with them, that they all kind of join up to make meaning and make meanings that would not be possible if you just had the words or just had the pictures. So if you look at something like Alfie Gets In First by Shirley Hughes, which is one of the greatest books in the English language, is incredible. So it's a story about Alfie, this little boy who... uh, is coming home with his mum and his sister from shopping and he's very excited. He charges into the house before she, his mum does and he shuts the door behind him and sort of goes, hooray, I'm the winner. And then realises that he's locked in and she's locked out because the keys are in the house with him and he's too small to do anything with them. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. But all through the book then, the mother and the little baby sister in her pram are on one side of the page, they're on the left-hand opening and Alfie in the house is on the other side of the page, on the right-hand opening. And the line between those two pages, the sort of gutter down the middle of the book, becomes where the front door is. That You can see inside the house and outside the house at the same time. And it's an incredible thing that you're sort of... The invisible line that you normally don't even look at in, when you're reading a book becomes a central part of that sort of space and that landscape in it. It's an incredible thing. There are, of course, author-illustrators, creators who can seamlessly bring together text and image in a perfect way. 
But in the vast majority of cases, picture books are the work of two people, not one. And it doesn't have to be a close collaboration either. For me, and for so many people I imagine, growing up reading Roald Dahl's stories, the unforgettable imagery of books like Matilda or The Twits is that of Quentin Blake. But Blake wasn't his original illustrator and and only illustrated things quite late in Dahl's career um, that a lot of the earlier books, particularly say James and the Giant Peach or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, went through several, several, several illustrators before Blake ever got his hands on them. And so that sort of idea that they're synonymous and they're working together to make this meaning doesn't really come about there. Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler, creators of The Gruffalo, one of the best-selling children's books of all time, work completely separately. She completes the text, sends it off to him, and he illustrates it. She doesn't ask him to redraw things because it was different in her head, and he doesn't question her rhyming schemes. And it works. The books are fantastic. Sometimes, however, this can be very problematic. And with that edge-of-your-seat declaration, I'm going to take a quick break. If you're a fan of this show and you'd like me to keep making it bigger and better, then head to patreon.com slash WTTE. There are lots of extra goodies for patrons, including bonus episodes. The WTTE live show with Caroline Crampton was a great success last week at the Dublin Podcast Festival. And if you missed out and you'd like to hear it, all you have to do is become a patron and I'll be releasing it as a bonus episode there very soon patreon.com slash WTTE. Back to the illustrator controversies. Piggine of Hoth was published to great acclaim in 2016. It topped the children's book charts and won a Borgosh Energy Irish Book Award. But Kathleen Watkins, the writer, won the award and was the only person sort of called up on stage that was one physical trophy and it was handed to the writer. And Margaret Ann Suggs, who was the illustrator, didn't get mentioned. But the really odd thing was that on the sort of jacket flap of the book, she the, the illustrator didn't get a biography either. Her name was mentioned on the title and on the spine, but you know she wasn't credited in any other way. And quite a lot of the publicity events after the award, you know, advertised the author is coming to do a signing, not the author and the illustrator. And yet, it was clear that the illustrations played a huge part in that in that picture book because they they were the sort of a dominant part of it or a dominating part of how the book was presented, marketed, read. This is an issue lots of illustrators get very understandably annoyed about and it's hopefully something that is changing. Also, in a purely commercial sense, if you think about where so much of the money around a best-selling children's book comes from, it's the merchandise. All those teddy bears and lunchboxes and sticker books are solely based on the illustrator's work. One way to sidestep all of this, of course, is to be an author-illustrator. And there are a number of Irish authors actually at the forefront of picture book publishing at the moment. The likes of Chris Houghton and Chris Judge, Neve Sharkey or Oliver Jeffers have achieved massive international success with their picture books. So where to start? Dr. Carroll had plenty of recommendations when I chatted to her. Far too many, unfortunately, for one podcast. But I'll pick out one. I, I love Dave McKee's uh, Not Now Bernard. It's it, in some ways a very simple story. Um, it's about a little boy who sees that there's a monster in his garden and he says to his mum, mum, there's a monster in the garden. And she says, not now, Bernard. And he goes to his dad and he says, dad, there's a monster and he's going to eat me. The dad says, not now, Bernard. So Bernard goes out to say hi to the monster. And of course, it eats him. Um, and then the monster comes 
into the house and finds Bernard's mum and says, rawr, and Bernard's mum says, not now, Bernard. <laughs> and they end up putting the monster to bed and keeping it as their child. It's yeah. really weird. But it's, it, the the imagery is so brilliantly uncanny. It's so unsettling. There's, there, it, it, there's sort of very flat collage-like colours but the monster's face is just so heartbreaking. He's so he's so sad that nobody believes him that he's a monster at the end. Not now, Bernard is a classic from the nineteen eighties. But what about today's picture books? Um, and so you see some publishers. I mean, something like the Knights of or Letterbox Library. They're doing so much with representation with um, diverse characters, with characters with diverse families. Um, but at the moment, you know, we're, we're still seeing quite a lot of books sort of making gender or making race a sort of issue at the heart of the book rather than just, this is just normal. This is absolutely normal. You know, the book where the child who has two daddies has to be about a child who has two daddies. And so that's why something like Space Girl Pukes is wonderful, uh, which is a story about a little girl who's sick and uh, both of her mothers are sick too. Everyone's sick. It's awful. But there's a lot of puking. And the puking is the funny part of the book. Mm. Um, And there's no comment really on you know, the fact that this is not a heteronormative family setup or something, you know, um, you know, that that's so often, so often it's just, I, I don't know, it's like a breath of fresh air when you see something different. Um, and quite often you'll get these, um, this notion, this outdated notion that it doesn't really matter in a picture book because if you're representing animals as the characters, then race doesn't come into it. I said, well, that's really a cop out, though, isn't it? That's not really enough to yeah. say that, you know, the the little white kids growing up in middle class families, they can have, you know, characters who look like them. But everybody who's not like that has to make do with like, this is a fox and that can be you. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not good enough um, that, we, you know, now we're starting to see more more diversity and more interesting things. But, you know, the more the more we have, the better, you know. Almost all of us have memories of reading or being read to as a child. There's something so magical about that total immersion in a book. You know, we, we get to the point where, you know, you're, you're happy enjoying your books, reading, you know, voraciously, you know, reading, reading on your stomach on the floor with your face kind of shoved in the book, like that mm. absolute immersion in this book. And then somebody who sort of whips it away from you and say, now, no more verse and also no more pictures or like one picture at the start of each chapter. I mean, it's a terrible loss, you know, that uh, you don't see, you don't see that sort of immersive reading so often with grown-ups, you know, that you very rarely see somebody kind of sprawled on the floor with their face in the book in the same sort of like drinking in every little detail of it. words and pictures coming together in a way that's just never quite the same as an adult reader. I'm not scared of skeletons rattling on their bones or strange sounds from the cellar creepy mountain girls. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Milo, whose bedtime story you heard. And a huge thanks to my special guest this week, Jane Carroll. She has published lots of work on children's literature, including on picture books. And she has a book on landscape in children's literature. So you should definitely check that out. I've put links to her bio and work on the website, which is wttepodcast.com. You can head there too for more info on everything, really, for all the previous episodes, for pictures and links and how to support the show, such as by becoming a Patreon supporter. 
And you can also follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. And finally, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a collective of great Irish podcasts. So go to headstuff.org to have a listen and maybe find your next favourite show. And that's it. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.